Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I'm your host, Elaine miller Karras, and my show today is entitled The Opioid Epidemic, A Mother's Journey from Grief to Global Purpose. And my guest today is Cami Wolf-Rice. Cami Wolf-Rice, the founder of the Christopher Wolf Crusade, will shortly share her journey of the loss of her son, Christopher, to the opioid epidemic. She brings to light the lost promise of her empathic son and how tragically he became addicted to opioids in the aftermath of a surgical procedure. His death sparked her passionate call to action to face this epidemic with innovative ideas. She will describe to us the Life Care Specialist Program launched at Brady Hospital in Atlanta and elaborate upon how wellness strategies work to prevent self-medicating. As founder of the Christopher Wolf Crusade, Cami Wolf Rice is dedicated to bringing an end to the opioid epidemic. Prior to her philanthropic work, Cami was senior vice president of finance technology for Bank of America, held director and partnership positions, respectively, with Hyperion, um, Deloitte Ernest and Young, and IBM. Cami serves on the board of the Cambodian Children's Fund, is vice chair for Usher's New Look Foundation, and is a member of the Emory Global Health Institute. She and her husband, John, live in Atlanta. Cami, welcome, my friend. I'm so honored to have you today. So as we begin today, is there anything on your mind as we start? I'm just thrilled to be here, Elaine. And, you know, it's just really good to see you. You know, um, it's, it's just great. And I can't wait till we can actually visit together again in person. It's, it's been yes. exactly a year now. It's been so. exactly a year. Yes. My yeah. last trip on a plane was to Atlanta. And Cammie and I almost had dinner every single night in gorgeous Atlanta. And um, I look forward to seeing you again, too. So, Cammie, I wonder if we can start talking a little bit about Christopher. I know that the anniversary of Christopher's death and his funeral just passed, and I'd like to invite you to share with our listeners what is important for friends, colleagues, family to understand about a mother's grief after the death of your beloved child, Christopher. Well, you know, to start, I mean, there is no word in the dictionary for when a parent loses a child. Um, If you lose your spouse, you're a widow. If you lose your parent, you're an orphan. And there's no word that exists for when you lose a child because there is no word. And um, I look at grief as a, it's a river. It's a river that honestly can never, ever become a dam. The river doesn't become a dam unless you stop it from flowing. And grief doesn't go away, but it must continue to flow talking about it, crying, letting it out. Because a dam bursting, as you know, is never a good thing. So you don't hold everything in. Um, Your flow is your flow because everybody deals with grief differently. So your flow is your flow as long as you continue to flow. I think that's what's so vitally important. And research shows that grief if you pull away from others, it's detrimental to your healing. And I think for me personally, the love of my family and my friends um, is what's helped me to go on. Um, having Christopher Wolf Crusade and having this mission and a purpose helps me move on. 
But death is not about the absence of love because when you love someone, you love them forever. And it sounds kind of strange to say, but I think that your love grows stronger for I mean, my love is stronger and stronger and becomes stronger and stronger with Christopher every day. And Cammy, as you tell me about this love that you have for Christopher, and I feel so honored that you shared his his memory with me and how he was on the, in, on the planet. But I know that we've talked also about that sometimes people don't know how to talk with you during the time that there's maybe his anniversary or his birthday, and people can feel really awkward. What, what would you like to tell people? How could they be with you, knowing that he's with you all the time? What would your right. advice be? Well, number one, I think it's really important on birthdays and anniversaries of, of such things, of the death and of the, of the funeral, it's real important that you protect yourself and that you stay in a safe environment and that you're around people that are going to give empathy and love and understanding to you. And some people try to fix grief. There is no fixing grief. You have to help your loved one to walk through it, but you can't fix it. You're you're not, it's never going to go away. Um, But just that love, again, it goes back to circling to loving that person. And I do think it is hard. Um, You know, I just recently had a, had a conversation um, with family about this because they don't know. I don't like it that nobody talks about him anymore. Like it's like he's just disappeared from the planet, and it, it's upsetting to me. And but I understand from their side, they don't know if the dam's going to burst if they bring it right. up. Right? What mood am I in, and how do I feel today? What they don't want to upset me, and so I think really it's on me. It's my responsibility to open that door of conversation to maybe say, Hey, remember when we went skiing and Christopher did this and this and this, and then it gives the freedom to other family members that it's okay that they can talk about Christopher. Um, because I don't want him to just be disappear. You know, I, I want those memories to come up. I want those stories. And when I talk to like sometimes a long lost friend I haven't talked to in a long time, or if one of Christopher's friends would share a story with me, they text me something or they post something on Facebook. It just makes my heart so happy to see some or to hear something that I didn't know about him or, you know, just to share something that they have about him. It, it really does make you feel great. Well, and I could clearly hear from you that even though he is physically not on the planet, he's very much with you every day that you breathe in this life. And so really to talk about him, and maybe we can do a little bit about that. I mean, one of the things that you shared with me when I first uh, met you, because you knew I was a social worker, is that he wanted to be a social worker. So can you tell us a little bit about Christopher so that we can have a little bit about him in our minds and hearts as well? Absolutely. Thank you for giving me the platform to do this because this this makes me happy. Like I'm just smiling ear to ear. I can see um, that you're smiling. <laughs> Christopher, he he just really, really cared about other people and he wanted people to feel like they mattered. And he was a hugger. So, you know, at one point in one summer I remember he was working at a at a vitamin store and he he knew every single thing about all the, the medicine, you know, the vitamins and things when people come in, but he, he would ask if he could hug somebody after they helped him, you know, he's just, he was just a hugger, you know, he, he very much got in your space because he wanted to hug you, but he took on your, 
your problems too. You know, like he felt your pain. Like he really, he really, you know, when you can tell when somebody's really listening to you or if you're talking to somebody and they're kind of looking around and looking over here, Christopher was engaged. He was right present. into what you were saying. Yes, he was very present. Very, very and, present. And when you talk to me about him, his empathy just pours out of you that he was a very empathic person. Yes, he was. And very handsome, of course. And very handsome. like and, and be, and Because Cammie is a very beautiful woman. I can't imagine that she wouldn't have a handsome son. So, so you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, how do we get through the difficulties, these storms that happen to our life? And having spoken to other parents who've lost their children, we don't expect to bury our children. We expect our children to bury us. So what has helped you to get through the death of Christopher? What is helping you now and what's helped you in the past? Could you share a little bit? about that journey? Yes. Um, interesting enough, there was, uh, he passed away in Cambodia. And when I flew back uh, to Atlanta, I had to fly with him underneath in the plane and in, in the casket, which was incredibly hard. But I don't know how it worked out, but one of his shirts that he loved, it's a Nike camouflage, long sleeve, very soft shirt it ended up in my bag and my carry-on bag. And on that plane, I, I got it out and I, I, it was a long sleeve shirt and I wrapped it around me. And I can't even tell you still to this day, I sleep with that shirt every night, mm-hmm. every night. And so I, I can only share what's worked for me, but if you have lost a child or you lost a loved one and you have something that, is close to them that you can wear or that you can cuddle up with. That shirt has been just an amazing thing for me. Um, I was fortunate enough to have his thumbprint uh, made into a necklace and I never take it off. And people always tell me, you know, I'm always rubbing it. I don't even realize when I'm rubbing it. I just will sit and talk and I'll just rub and rub his thumbprint. So that's, that's a biggie. And is that something I, that keeps him close to you when you touch that 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 necklace around your neck? Yes. So when you're talking, I'm I'm hearing about these these things that really call him to you, and it's I think it's really important because oftentimes you know there's no script about how you grieve, and especially the loss of a child. And so these things are about his memories close to you and things that are tangible that you can look at and see, and and hold on to are important. So I think that's certainly a lesson that we can all learn if we lose someone so beloved. So I'm just wondering, you know, one of the things that we talked about Christopher's life was um, his struggle with addiction. And um, I know that it, it happened, it started happening after he had a surgery when he was, was he 17 when he had the surgery? And can you tell us a little bit about this? Because I think the other question that's connected to what happened to him is what do you believe could have saved his life? because I know that you've pondered this over and over again. You've shared some of this with me. So let Mm -hmm. us know about that. So um, in eighth grade, actually, Christopher was um, diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. And for those of you who don't know about that disease, it's brutal because you have diarrhea 15 to 20 times a day. And being in middle school, uh, it was very hard, and I, I don't think I was even aware how much he was bullied, having to go to the restroom and do all those kinds of things. It was humiliating, and so he suffered with that for four years on in high school, and when he became a senior in high school, um, they said, 
we have to remove his large intestine. And honestly, we were very naive to what was going to happen. We didn't realize, and he had complications. And so this was at the exact time that Oxycontin was released on the market from Purdue Pharma. It was strictly used before in palliative care and cancer patients, and it opened up to uh, to be used in hospitals for surgeries and so forth. And he was on morphine for 70 days when he had his large intestine removed. And then when we went home, I'll never forget, it was a huge bottle. It was 90 Oxycontins. And Elaine, I... You know, we, we so don't question things when, when we're given to by authority. And I didn't question the doctor. I thought it was my duty every four hours to give him those pills. And, and there was no one in the hospital to talk to me about pain management, to talk to me about the um, side effects to the medicine that he was being given. And at that time, the doctors were being told, quite frankly, by Purdue, that it wasn't addicting, that it was not going to be a problem. And so there was no conversation at all made around those those topics. And <clears throat> I just didn't have any guidance when I was in the hospital with him to, to discuss his pain, his anxiety, his stress, his depression from being in the hospital for 70 days. There was no person to go to. And he was a young man that, I mean, he missed his, what, his uh, high school, his graduation and his prom and the things that you do as a 17-year-old, he wasn't able to do because of being so ill. And I imagine the pain, the physical pain must have been great as well as the emotional pain. So, I mean, it you, was, and you want to find some way to help. So, um, so do you believe that if you would have had some help in the hospital to understand the addictive properties of what he was given, that that would have made a difference for you and Christopher? A hundred percent plus. Um, if, if, if I had the tools and if I knew then what I know now, absolutely. Um, he was doomed from the day he went home and I didn't even realize it. And, and honestly, he fought it for, he fought the addiction for 14 years and he fought it hard every single day multiple treatment centers, but then he would have to have another surgery. He had multiple surgeries. So once I get him off the medicine, then he would be back on it because he had another surgery. And yeah, if I, you know, it's a, that's what it could have, should have, right? Um, had I known what I know now, um, and even the medical assisted treatment programs that they have out now for people that are way into substance misuse, they need that medical assistant treatment. And it wasn't even an option when Christopher was alive. And so do you think that there's um, um, programs now within hospitals that help families that were facing what you and Christopher faced after his surgery? No. There's not. Okay. No. This is, and this is 20 years later. Is that correct? Exactly. 20 years later. Exactly. So. So maybe we can segue into the nonprofit that you started, the Christopher Wolf Crusade. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this nonprofit and how this is different from, let's say, other nonprofits that have similar missions of trying to, to do something about the opioid epidemic? Well, there are great organizations out there that are focused and rightfully so should be focused on treatment because treatment is needed. Obviously, we have a huge epidemic on our hands. Um, and I felt like 
we as a country don't do enough on prevention to stop it before it starts. And so I really, I really struggled with, you know, again, there was so much being done on the treatment, but what is being done to prevent in hospitals when a patient has a traumatic surgery or traumatic and they're given a prescription of opiates, how is the same exact thing not going to happen that happened to my son? And so I knew right away that the swim lane and the focus for Christopher Wolf Crusade needed to be prevention, education, and awareness. And we've got to do it quickly. So, Kimmy, is there a high percentage of people that today get addicted to opioids because they've had a surgery, a medically necessary surgery, that their doctor has prescribed opioids, and yet there's no plan to how they come off the opioids? Yes. um, You know, it's like the tobacco industry, right? There's a surgeon went a general warning on a cigarette pack, but when you get an opiate prescription, there's not anything on the label of that pill bottle saying danger, danger, all these things can happen to you when you take this medicine. And what we've found, um, and, I, and I'll get into our position that we've now created in hospitals, the life care specialist, but what we found is the majority, over 70% of the patients that we talk to don't even know they're taking an opiate and don't know what an opiate is. So when I say education and awareness, yes, you can become addicted by one prescription. Prescription does not equal safe. And there's a lot of side effects to coming off of opiates if you're on them for any length of time. So if you can have other ways to deal with your pain and have other techniques and tools to deal. Now, I will say, depending on the surgeries and things that have happened to you, I'm not saying that opiates aren't necessary. There is a time and a place for them, but the most important thing is to know how fast and how quickly it is that you get off of them. Because when you're detoxing, it is not a pleasant experience. It is, you get really, really deathly sick, sweating, vomiting, can't function. I mean, and you can, and that can go on for days. And I don't think people realize that because they take the pill and they, the pain goes away, right? And so, okay. And then the next thing you know, you can't just go with one. But now I need two more pills. Now I need more. And you have to constantly increase the dosage. Well, and as you're talking, Cammie, I'm thinking about two things. One is you said something about when you get a prescription. Um, and I know, you know, kind of being a person who follows the rules, I think that you are, that the doctor here goes, here, your son needs to take this. You're going to go, okay, every four hours, I'm going to make sure my clock is set. I'm going to give him this. But there was never the, oh, and by the way, if this happens, this is something that you need to take seriously. And so because it's a, a prescription doesn't mean that it may not cause you harm. That's what I heard you say. Is that correct? I mean, that's something that you want to amplify. I do want to amplify. And and it honestly, it doesn't just start in hospitals, even with dentists. Elaine, how many how many parents have kids that are getting wisdom teeth pulled? You don't need 30 Percocet. You need ice, you need Motrin. These are the kinds of things that Christopher Wolf Crusade, I'm trying to educate people because, again, the dentist gave me the 30 Percocets, so I'm going to give them to my daughter. Well, no, 
really she doesn't need that. She needs some Motrin and some ice. So is part of the Christopher Wolf crusade also wanting to educate physicians about how they prescribe opioids as well as um, uh, educating the public about opioid use? Is it, is it a two-pronged approach? No question about it. And you know what? It is really made a lot of headway because there is a database in every state now across the country that monitors prescription writing and the doctors are being more aware and the writing, the prescription writing has reduced substantially. However, this is shocking, but majority of our medical schools and nursing schools across the country don't have any classes on addiction. Really? (laughs) I imagine you want to change that. (laughs) Cammie Rice Wolf. (laughs) Yes. Um, Some have a few, maybe an hour class, maybe, you know, but I've done over 150 interviews with doctors, with nurses, nursing schools. Now, are we working on that? Yes. But doctors in the hospital, they don't have a strong educational background around substance misuse. And while the prescription writing has gone down, absolutely, what's happened, Elaine, out on the street, let's say you've been getting a regular high dose of Oxycontin because you have a chronic back pain issue, right? And now the doctor says, you know what, Elaine, I I can't write you those prescriptions anymore. What's happening is that person has one of two things that can do. One, they go to the street and they start buying heroin because it's cheap and they have this chronic back pain, right? Or the suicide rate's gone up. I can't handle this pain. I can't get my pills. I can't deal. And the thing that's interesting is 80% of heroin users reported using prescription opiates prior to their use of heroin, 80%. So we're seeing interconnected. So here we're saying, okay, these are illegal, but this is legal, but where did it start? So that's why the prevention piece is so important, that if you can get people to stop taking it before they even get to that point, or like you say, when you go to the dentist, instead of getting Percocet, that you get another kind of medication that's not addicting, then you could change the course of many people's lives. Because what we've learned, I, if you, you know, you've taught me a lot as well in my own reading, is that anyone could get addicted to Percocet. Anyone yes. could, to opioids. Yes. So you can be the strongest will person in the world, but the way that the design of this particular kind of drug is so powerful in how it changes the brain architecture and then sets up this addictive process. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, And, And that's the thing. And that's why it's so important that we educate. We've got to build more awareness around prescription drugs so that people understand, uh, because a lot of people didn't know that. 19% of people who take pain medication prescriptions develop a dependency. That's a big number. Did you say 19%? That is a lot. So I'm just curious, as you've been speaking to physicians, how have they been, how have they received your message? Because you're very passionate about this. It, you know, when you, if you could see her speak, her her whole face is lit up and she talks with her hands about how important this is. Because I know it's so connected to the legacy of Christopher as well. So how, how is it being received by, by physicians? Well, when you ask me that question, I have to bring up my champion, Dr. Shanker at, at Grady Hospital, because she's an orthopedic trauma surgeon and she's our champion at Christopher Wolf Crusade. And she, I, I listened to her, how I met her. She was speaking to a group at Grady and she said, 
I had no idea that I was part of the opiate epidemic. I, I, I'm not a part of it. And she went back to check with her PA and she said, my PA told me, oh, well, actually you're one of the top prescription writers of opiates. And she said, I had no idea. And she said, and why are my patients calling up and negotiating how many pain pills they get? You don't negotiate how many antibiotics you get when you get a prescription. And, and so she realized, wait a minute, I got to stop here and really look at this. And so to answer your question, I think that doctors, most doctors are becoming well-educated on the writing and realizing that they don't have to write 60 prescriptions for a hip replacement. They can do 30, you know, and so the pain protocol is changing in hospitals around the country. Um, I'm, I do definitely see a shift. Um, you know, this was a lot of finger pointing and, you know, it's big, big, big business gone really, really bad. And, um, Am I bitter against Purdue Pharma? Absolutely. They knew, and they didn't educate physicians. Um, but, but instead of being bitter and going down that road, I'm trying to be more proactive and say, how can we change it moving forward? Well, and, and that's why you created the Life Care Specialist Program. And when we come back from our break, oh, stay tuned, because she is going to tell you about an amazing innovation that you are piloting in um, Grady Hospital in Atlanta. And and this doctor that you're talking about, is is she one of your champions there? So someone who was, I, I love this story and I had never realized that until you just said it. So the, the doctor who was prescribing the most opioids is now part of your posse of folks helping to try to end this practice that is, has been rampant in hospitals without the knowledge of it. How wonderful yeah. is that? And, uh, and so now you've created this cadre of people at Brady Hospital. They're called Life Care Specialists. So really hold on to that name because she's going to come back and she's going to tell us what they do, how they do it, and also give us some preliminary information about how is it working. And I know she has some powerful stories and they're collecting data and about, I believe you're about to start what's called a randomized controlled trial so that you're going to see, well, is it making a difference? Because the preliminary with your first hundred um, patients that you have seen, you know that there's an impact. So sometimes we have to do that first before we do the second part, which is that randomized controlled trial. So I am so excited that our listeners in a very few in in in, in a couple minutes are going to hear about the life care specialist. So this is Elaine Miller Karras with Resiliency Within, and my my guest today is Cami Wolf Rice. And stay tuned after the break; she will give us a lot of great information. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Cammie um, Wolf-Rice, and she is going to be sharing more about the life care specialist, but we want to make a little, a little correction. Do you want to talk a little bit about orthopedic sur- surgeons and, again, about the, um, what we were talking about before the, before the break, Cammie? Yes, yes. I just wanted to clarify when I was saying that Dr. Shanker is our – Dr. Mara Shanker from Brady Hospital. She's our champion on our project. She – when I said that she she's not the highest writer of prescriptions at Grady Hospital, but she realized that she was writing more than she was aware of. And then when she took a deep dive in it, she said, wait a minute, I want to get involved and do something about it. And then we, we met and we had lunch and then it's been 100 miles an hour plus over the last two years. So I just didn't want to apply that she was. <laughs> yes, we wouldn't want to make that application. No, what what no. is this about? But you did say something about orthopedic surgeons because certainly orthopedic surgery would be very painful. So what, what's the statistic that you were sharing with me at the break? They're the third largest uh, writer of prescription opiates um, orthopedic surgeons are because they're dealing with, you know, car accidents, gunshot wounds, um, you know, major operations and surgeries. So, while they do put the patients on opiates, it's they're the third largest prescriber. So that's well, why we've actually started our study in orthopedic surgery. Well, and that's perfect. That is a perfect segue for us to talk about the life care specialist program. So can you tell us well, what exactly is this program and what do life care specialists do? Life care specialists create a barrier that prevents pain management at the hospital from becoming a drug addiction at home. I like to start with that because, you know, we need a human being, a person that is a part of the health team. So working with the health team at the hospital, with the doctors, with the nurses, as you know, doctors, physicians, and nurses are extremely busy and they don't have the time to be at the patient bedside to work out a pain management plan to educate the patients about the medication that they're being given 
making them aware you are on an opiate, you're going to be going home with an opiate, we're going to follow you when you're discharged from the hospital. Um, so that's number one. Uh, then the second part of it is using the community resilience model to work with these patients around anxiety, stress, depression, PTSD. And, you know, the Grady Hospital health team, they're great at fixing the issue if there's a gunshot or a surgery, right? But the patient's been through a traumatic experience. So the life care specialist is there to help them with what happened. And we use the community resilience model and the skills that are so easy so adaptable for any age, for any literacy level that can be taught quickly and effectively. And so, so, so if you can help me, I know I've met some of your wonderful life care specialists. And so, you know, maybe take us through what do they do? So how do they get the referral in the hospital? Because I would, I know that one of your missions is you'd like to see life care specialists in every hospital, not only in the United States, but in the world um, so that we could start you know, more prevention strategies. So can you tell us a little bit step-by-step step what they do? How do they know where to go? Um, is, is, um, and when they do go and meet the, the uh, patient, you know, how do, they, how do they get the patient engaged that the patient might even want to listen to them? Can you give us some examples? So we've been in the hospital, we've been at Grady for about a year now, and we've seen over 100 patients. In May, we're going to be starting a control t- trial meaning that there'll be a control group of people that get the life care specialist and a control group of patients that don't have, and you have to compare the data. Um, I do want to mention that this trial is registered on clinicaltrials.gov. I mean, it is a true research project through Emory. And we do a risk assessment with the patients. And it's a survey of questions. And we have to ask the patient if they're willing to be a part of the program. And most do. They, they want somebody, they, when you say life care, you're, you're, you're talking about my life care? Yes, I want to be a part of that. But it does require a lot of questions. And they can be personal questions. Um, but we have to go through that due diligence to understand and, and do an assessment so that we can provide them the right techniques and tool set that we believe that they need after the assessment's done. And so as you, after, when you finish the assessment, then they create a plan of intervention with each particular patient that they meet. And I know that you were sharing with me that um, as hard as the pandemic has been for all of us, there was also a silver lining that happened in terms of the implementation of the life care specialist program. Cause so can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Thank you for asking Elaine. Um, we obviously, when we, when we started this program at Grady, we had no idea COVID was coming, right? Right. And we were able to stay on the floor during COVID and think about this. For example, we had a patient that she was 26 years old and she had her leg amputated. She had nobody to come see her. She couldn't have her mother. She couldn't have her father. And so if it hadn't been for the life care specialist, to be able to be at the bedside and to check. And the life care specialist over the duration of a patient's stay at the hospital gets very close relationship. There's sometimes five, six hours total they've spent with that person. And so during COVID, 
uh, I really feel that it just uplifted the position, became so much more important. And as we all know, since COVID, look how mental wellness is such important two words in our vocabulary that really nobody talked about before. And we didn't discuss the anxieties that we have on a day-to-day basis. Now it's okay. Everybody's like, it's a freedom now all of a sudden to say, let's talk about mental wellness. And our life care specialists are there to provide that mental wellness piece, those techniques and those tools through the CREM model. Honestly, that's that's what we use. Well, I just love that you use CRIM. And for our listeners that may not know what the CRIM model is, this is something that I actually helped develop. And I'm just going to give you a brief um, description. It's called the Community Resiliency Model. It's a set of six wellness skills that can be easily learned by individuals across the lifespan. It's evidence-based and research-informed. In fact, many of our researchers are right there at Emory in the School of Nursing, Lindy Grabby being one of them. It design, its design takes into consider, consideration our current understanding of neuroscience. Um, research indicates it can significantly reduce depression and anxiety and can also increase well-being. So those six wellness skills can be interwoven into the activities of daily living. And I always have to give it an, a shout out that we have an app called iChill that people can listen to how to how to how to integrate the skills into their life and do the skills on a regular basis. So um, so when you talk about the um, the interventions, because I know that there's also more than the community resiliency model. There's a whole array of different options that the life care specialists bring to the to the um, to the patients. But one of the things that you've shared with me are coloring books, and I really always thought that was so interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Um, yes, Cammie? that has been one of our most popular things is the adult coloring book, and ironically, I. I a young man that I've been helping uh, who's struggling with addiction got me an adult coloring book a few weeks ago as a gift. And I thought, well, that's so interesting because that's what the patients love at the hospital. So I started doing it. Elaine, it is so therapeutic. It's relaxing, it. isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Who would have known something we did as, a, as children we can also bring back as adults. But I think I, I wanted to mention that because I think they give a lot of options. There's progressive relaxation techniques. Yes. I think there's yes. breathing, um, different kinds of breathing exercises they've interwoven into the different strategies. So it's kind of menu options, which I think that there's a certain brilliance of that because not one size fits all. So I love the flexibility of the Life Care Specialist Program. And I love that you call it Life Care. Could you tell us a little bit about the etiology of why you call it life care? I just love that term. Uh, well, it went through a lot of uh, iterations for sure. And, you know, we wanted to come up with the right name. And, and I'm so glad that we do have life care because it is expanded and it continues to expand. We talk about their sleep. We talk about, you know, it's just it is their entire life care program. So, um I think that it it sets the tone with the patient that we're there on their behalf to be that advocate for that patient about the care that they're being given. And we give a resource guide. I don't know if you can see here, but every patient. For those of you on Facebook, she has a wonderful um, purple um, resource guide. And uh, purple, I know, is the color of the Christopher Wolfe Crusade. So, um, but if people wanted to get a copy of that resource guide, can they get it through your website? Or is that only for patients in the hospital? Right now, we currently only have it for patients. But a lot of the information that we have in the resource 
because they get to take the guide home and we have a page in the back that the life care specialist writes out a specific pain management plan for that patient so they get to take it home. Um, but there, a lot of the skills are, I think everything is on there. It's just not in book format on the website. Okay, and so we're going to talk about the website again, but it's cwc.ngo, and they can go, they can get a whole plethora of information that you are yes. wanting to spread through the world. And also, they can also follow you on Instagram and Facebook so they can learn more about what you're doing in real time, because I know you're just beginning, because this launch just happened recently, um, and it's so exciting to think about, you you know, all that you're doing. But I want to ask you a question. I, and I, I don't think I've, I've prepared you for this question, but I need to ask it to you because you know that I'm an old hospital social worker. And for many years and earlier parts of my career, I worked in hospitals and it was always hard to get funding for prevention. I mean, because, you know, hospitals are so busy and there's so many wounds that we're tending to. So how is this being funded? Um, because I think this might be something also of why we need to go to your website. So how, how are you funding the life care specialist programs? It's a great question. Um, we've actually been doing self-funding uh, initially to get started. However, we've applied to multiple grants that we, and we've received uh, a few grants. We were able to hire a full-time researcher and paid position Um we have a, a team that has grown, like our research team has grown so much, which is so exciting. But so we've applied to several grants. We're waiting to hear back from a few. Uh, because of the opiate epidemic, there are many grants um, around opiate prevention and that. So we, we are hopeful to that. But we're also going to be launching a campaign in the fall, and it's going to be the campaign of one. If you could sponsor one life care specialist in one hospital to save one life. So we will be doing some funding uh, through corporate and uh, and through, you know, just like insurance companies and things like that. I mean, we're really, once we've got the data, the proven data, as, as researchers like to see, and we have the statistics all lined up, then that's when we're really going to be putting forth this campaign of one in the fall. So we want to make sure, and we'll have to bring you back to talk about this campaign of one, because we want this to spread. Because if we don't contribute as a as a really a nation, um, we're we're not going to tackle this opioid epidemic. And it's I mean we've been talking about the the pandemic of COVID. Of course, it's been horrible, but we are also at the same time dealing with an epidemic of the opioid crisis. And I don't think we, you know, it's kind of been shrouded because of the pandemic, but we need to know that that's going on at the same time. And do we have any evidence, Cami, at this point that the pandemic has caused increased use um, of opioids or not? Do we have any information about that? Well, overdoses are up 40%, 40% since the beginning of COVID. So, Obviously, that's alarming, and um, we have been asked to move life care specialists in the emergency department, in the sickle cell unit. We're really looking at expanding into different departments outside of orthopedic. Um, And, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention, um, many hospitals don't have the capability to do follow-up with patients. And we were able to partner with with HSS up in New York, and they helped us to have a texting mechanism so that when you're discharged from the hospital, the life care specialist can still stay connected with you at your follow-up appointments, and you'll receive a text every day. How's your pain level? 
how many pills did you take today, just to monitor and stay connected to that patient, which I do think follow-up is, is a critical point as well. Well, and from what um, you know, you've shared with me in the past is that if the patient is going home with the medication and if they don't have the follow-up, then they may not be able to maybe implement their tapering off plan that is part of what the life care specialist helps do right in the training program. Absolutely. So there's there's two things also that you know we need funding for as well. Um, we want to provide all the patients with a charcoal disposal bag so they have a place to dispose of their pills so they don't become out on the street or they don't go in a medicine cabinet and are stolen by a family member or whatever the situation may be. I think disposing of opiates is so important. And we're also applying for a grant to supply the patient when they go home with that opiate with Narcan so that there is an overdose situation. And actually, I'm proud to say that two lives have been saved in this last year because the life care specialist did educate the patient on Narcan. It happened to be at a clinic follow-up appointment, so they were able to talk to the family member and the Narcan was used. And so two lives have been saved um, which I'm extremely well, grateful for. And obviously. that brings me to another question is that, you know, I know this is a prevention program, but your life care specialists are developing relationships with these individuals who are greatly suffering. Now, you were sharing with me um, before we started today about the percentage of people when you do your initial assessment that they may already have an addictive process. Is that correct? Yeah, there is... Um after we've done it, just with the first 100 patients that we have um, seen, 25% have personal history with substance misuse. Almost half of the patient survey have family history of substance misuse. Um, and over 50% screened as high risk for opiate use disorder. And uh, close to 25% reported being diagnosed with a mental health condition. So as you can see, problems are best solved before they start. Right. right. So then you're really identifying things that may be occurring. So there may, there's also an amplification of your interventions. And you were, if you can share a little bit, because also you've identified other stressors that these, uh, the patients may be experiencing. And can you tell us a little bit more about those other stressors that you identify and that now you can help with? Well, it's actually happened organically. It grew out of the program because they're spending so much time with the patients during their hospital stay. We've been able to identify other needs that that patient has, food insecurity, housing insecurity, amputee support group they might need, or domestic violence shelter, whatever the case may be, where as in a normal situation, had that life care specialist not been with that patient, that patient would have fell through. So we really are becoming that, filling that gap. It's like the spoken wheel, you know, that we're able to pass the baton, we're able to connect the patient with the social worker, uh, with the caseworker and take make sure that those things are taken care of because they've been identified. Whereas had it not been that intervention, the patient would have fallen through the crack. Oh, I'm so glad that you mentioned this. So the life care specialist then becomes part of a multidisciplinary team. So it's yes. really, yes, this innovation of a new professional designation that yes. doesn't exist. Because, because the services 
do exist at hospitals for that. But what happens is a lot of times they don't know and they don't recognize that the patient has the issue. Well, I, the, other, the other thing that you had shared with me is that um, you've been working really hard too to think about how can we get life care specialist programs maybe as a training program. Can you tell us a little bit about what your efforts are along those lines? Because I know you have a, a, a small group right now in your, you know, at Brady, but you're you have a big vision for this. So can you tell us more about your big vision? Because it's a very powerful big vision that I am so hopeful for, um, Cami. Well, I'm, I'm very excited of the relationship that we have with Emory University as a whole and with the Dean of Nursing. She's been completely, and Dean of Medical School. I mean, we've just gotten so much support um, from Emory in general, and Emory and Grady, you know, are, are brother and sister, so to speak. And so there is a platform at the Emory Nursing School that we're looking at right now that we will be able to put our entire life care specialist curriculum on that platform. So the ultimate goal is that, first of all, we're establishing a new career career for healthcare providers, right? So this is a new career. And um, you would be able to go to this platform, take these multiple certifications, get certified as an instructor with the Trauma Resource Institute. Um, We have a whole uh, group of module training on addiction that we've worked with Hazleton Betty Ford with. Um, So... Anyway, putting that curriculum on that platform so you would actually get your life care specialist certification from Emory School of Nursing, which would be really exciting and, and dream come true. You know, I mean, I'm telling you, this is this is going to be in every hospital. Well, I, have, I think what I'm, I'm very impressed about is that you have been this has been very well thought out because we're talking about addiction. We're talking about. Um, well, the community resiliency model that we have lots of evidence now that it's a it's a very brief intervention that can lead to well-being and also a reduction in anxiety and depression. Um, you have Emory that is really there with you going, this is a very wonderful innovation and how can we help you with this? So I can see that this launching pad is happening and it, and really it's just been, since we met, it's been a year and I know you were working on this long before I met you, but it's very exciting to see all that's happened in this year of time. So are there any other things about the program that you think before I leave here today with you, Elaine, I want them to know about? Um, is there anything that's coming up? Because this is really important that our listeners know. Well, I do think it's a critical piece to the healthcare team uh, at hospitals. That I, I I see it even expanding beyond hospitals into clinics and into other areas um, because of the the services that we offer. Uh, I ask that people will say, "What can I do? What can I do?" Follow us right now. Follow us and share our information. If you save one life because one person didn't become addicted to an opiate because of going to the dentist and said no, right? How great would that be? Um, The other exciting news just for me personally is that I'm currently writing a book. And I'm very, very excited about the book because it represents my desire to touch those that I will never meet. And it will represent the truth of the pain the cliches, yeah. not, the, not the 12 steps, but the, the despair, the confusion, and the clarity you gain when you're honest about it all, right? I mean, I just, I really feel like it was important for me to, to get a book out there. And so I'm in the midst of that, and it should be released around the November timeframe. 
So we'll definitely bring you back. And, you know, you know that this program is called Resiliency Within. And I have to ask you this, you know, do you have a, a definition of resiliency that floats in, in your mind? I mean, you're to me an epitome of a resilient person that with all the suffering that you've had, you've pulled out the best parts of yourself to create such an incredible legacy for your son and for yourself and your family. Well, the number one thing, Elaine, I do want to say is that you have been so helpful when you told me at dinner last year, when I'm telling my story, not to repeat the trauma in the exact order that it happened, because my brain doesn't know the difference that I'm reliving the experience and having to talk about my son dying every day. It's changed the way I'm able to stay in my resilient zone and to stay okay because of the way I'm able to express it. So I thank you for that advice because yes. literally, whew, very helpful. You know, it's just to not repeat that traumatic story of exactly the order it happened. And you articulate saying it much better than me. Well, I think, really I, I think my suggestion that. was, tell us about what you're doing right now for his legacy. I mean, that we can talk about who he was on this planet, the empathic, caring person, the hugger, um, the, uh, the person who would see people suffering and reach out to them. One picture that you had shown to me was he, when he was in Cambodia before he died was a picture of him holding a sweet little Cambodian child in his hand. And that's something that I think about when I think about your son, I think about that. And I want to I remind everyone that um, they can get a hold of you through the Christopher Wolf Crusade. And I also want to say that we're both wearing purple in the memory of your son. I went and changed my shirt when I forgot. But yes, we're both wearing purple. So that's the, the purple color. And um, I can't wait to hear more about your book. Um, and also that people can reach out and learn more about the Life Care Specialist Program by going to your website. And I guess that the final thing is that I think there might be people listening that could have an addiction, that maybe knows someone that they love that has an addiction, and we know that they can reach out to you. But I also want you all to know that there is a Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, SAMHSA, has a helpline, and the helpline you know, provides free confidential information. It's 1-800-662-4357. One eight hundred six six two four three five seven, where people can get some help if you need this right now. And so, Cami, thanks again for being a wonderful guest. And I feel so grateful for my trip to Atlanta a year ago that you crossed my pathway. And uh, thank you, Elaine. I Thank know you we, for having me. Well, you are so welcome. So stay tuned, my, my, uh, my listeners, and remember what else might be true in your life. I think there's no better living example than Cammie Wolf-Rice. And next week, I'll have Dr. Joy Miller, who she will share with us about the largest resiliency conference on the planet that she has created and she's cultivating in the world. So we will see you next week. This is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off for today. Thank you so much for coming and listening. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karis, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. 